This is the Third Act Podcast, shining a spotlight on individuals, charities, and small business owners suffering from illness, economic shutdown, or lack of support and funding. Meaningful conversations that generate compassion and financial support from listeners compelled to join us on this journey to improve the lives of others. I'm gonna dance with the stranger. I'm gonna enjoy your show. I'm gonna learn to forgive and really let it go. And most of all, I wanna shine a light on good and look to give back. And that's what I'll do with my third, third act. And now your host, Roger Steed. Thank you, everyone, for joining us today for the Third Act Podcast. I am really jazzed to have my podcast guest, Charlie Cavell, who I first heard on a Zoom call about a month ago or so for the Oakland County Task Force for Poverty and Homelessness. Charlie happens to be the Oakland County Commissioner for the 18th District, which encompasses Ferndale, Hazel Park, Huntington Woods, Oak Park, and Royal Oak Township. His enthusiasm and energy on the Zoom call really stood out and made quite an impression on me regarding his knowledge and interest to pursue a wide set of initiatives to help folks dealing with housing issues in the county. Charlie was elected commissioner last November and brings to the position a great background as a social worker and a ton of unique experiences that I want to hear about in a minute. Charlie grew up in Michigan and attended Wayne State and University of Michigan, completing his education and earning his master's degree in social work. After completing his master's, he worked internationally in community development in Southeast India, Uganda, and Egypt. Returning to Michigan, Charlie brought his experience to the city of Detroit, assisting them on economic policy. His passion for helping others is demonstrated by his own philanthropic endeavors, founding an innovative nonprofit called Pay It Forward Initiative while at Wayne State, and also working with New Detroit, a nonprofit focused on racial justice. If that is not impressive enough, along with his responsibilities of county commissioner, Charlie currently works at Habitat for Humanity in an administrative role. Charlie, my friend, you are really rocking it, and I am so happy you are available to be my podcast guest today. Thank you for coming on. Thank you for having me, Roger. And if I could just say, it was so interesting to check you out and look you up online after our introductory chat. So I'm really excited to go deep with you because what I gather from you is you're you're not one for small talk, so I'm excited. We'll see. We have a lot to explore for sure. But I thought we'd first start this uh, podcast f- for the listening audience because I want them to know you, and I also want to know you. So a little bit more about your background I think would really be uh, valuable. What was your inspiration for this social-minded work that you are driven toward that took you through college and into the international community development Talk about that whole genesis. What was driving you at that time or during that period? Yeah, so I like to think of, I guess first a better way to start is to say that my chosen purpose in life is to empower people to recognize their potential 
and then help enable them to fulfill it. So that comes out of my personal experiences as a kid. I was raised by a single parent, my dad, who then ended up going to jail. And so my mom passed away when I was two. My dad ended up going to jail when I was 10. I was in and out of foster care for a little bit, moved back in with my dad, lived with my grandparents for a little bit, et cetera, so on. Fast forward, I got adopted at 16. And so I think first I learned empathy from those experiences to understand what it's like to be someone who doesn't always get what you want or yep. to see others that have when you're not. And that then made me start to question why the world was the way it was. And so in that sense, I don't think that's anything different than anyone else who's come to a giving profession or who tries to tie that their faith-based community or anything else where they're community-minded or thinking outside themselves. You have to have some sort of point in time in your life when you realize, man, maybe there's something bigger than myself out there and I ought to be a more global citizen or part of that broader community. Obviously, but when you started the Pay It Forward initiative while at Wayne State, what was the genesis of that? Because that, that was still in your undergraduate years. How did that come come to be? Yeah, I actually had a neighbor who lived in the apartment building I was living in down in Detroit near Wayne State who was chronically unemployed. And I, being 19, I thought I understood to an extent why that was. And I had a friend who was in the business school at Wayne State who had given me a free subscription for six months to the Wall Street Journal. So I was reading the Wall Street Journal, and this was during the economic crisis of 2008 to 2010. So I was reading the Wall Street Journal, learning about the economy, seeing the world in a different way, opening my eyes and broadening my horizons. And then I realized that all that high-mindedness and there's this guy next door in the you know apartment across the hall from me who just doesn't go to work and doesn't have access to a job, doesn't have a car, so he doesn't have access to any number of other things, including a job. He doesn't have education or access to education. So it seemed like this bottleneck. And from that point, I just presumed that I, I was just interested enough in trying to figure out why this problem exists and why people have laid claim to the fact that's just how things are. That's been a big sticking point to me when people say, well, that's just the way things are. That seems like that's a area to focus in on and being problematic. Also, when people say it's more complicated than you might think, that's also another area I like to focus in on and saying, is it though? Because that then usually descends into a values conversation. So I thought, okay, let's think about that and start digging. And as a social work student, as someone who was interning and having to work in the field as a social work student, I then was able to talk to different helping organizations and nonprofits and saw how their models worked and tried to come up with a different take on that model. And with no skills or qualifications or a tie or a suit, just started knocking down doors and really, to be honest about it, just bothering people in places of power until they they had to kind of <laughs> listen or tell me off and they were too polite <laughs> to tell me off, so. That's great, that's great. <clears throat> Is the initiative still going on today? No. It was folded underneath. So what ended up happening is pay it forward. The uniqueness to this model was what historically happens with workforce development programs is it's inherently behind the market. So it's, there is, uh, for example, the big thing that I got stuck on learning about was there's a nonprofit in Detroit that had received this $2 million grant from the Department of Labor to create at least 100 jobs per cohort and do three or four cohorts a year. So give several hundred people job training on machines to use at the plant for GM or Ford or Chrysler. But one, GM, Ford and Chrysler were closing plants. And then two, the only reason the plants that were open were still open were because of huge tax breaks so that 
there could be Americans working in plants. So, it, and on top of that, there are people with 30 years experience in plants losing their jobs or needing jobs. So why would someone who just learned how to do something be competitive? So that just seemed like a $2 million waste of money. Asking someone to show up to a job training program on the other side of town at 9 a.m., five days a week when you're not able to pay them, you may or may not be giving them lunch. They may or may not have access to childcare if they have children. You're just setting people up for failure. And then another thing that I found from just being someone working in the field in social work was lots of people have all these training certificates. There were plenty of people that I came across that had binders filled with in 1988. I went to Highland Park Junior College when that still existed to learn computer class. I had a summer job at the city of Detroit rec center for learning how to do tree planting. I have this certificate, that certificate, all these sort of accreditations that then mean that I just basically went through a six week job training program, but couldn't find substantive lasting work. And so how do we fix that? So it has to flip the model to being where do you meet the need, where it is, when it is. And when you think about it, most jobs, especially lower skilled or lower wage jobs, should be accessible to people with low skill. But then it became a thing of access. So who had the network? So I basically created a network of businesses that then instead of them hiring their friends or their family or the people that knew to apply or walk through that part of town to then ask for an application or say all the businesses around state where they would take students, I asked for a first right of refusal for people from the broader community, people that had been structurally unemployed, people that were at risk of homelessness and that sort of thing and set up the infrastructure to enable that friction and then people got hired. That's and then on awesome. top of that, the other thing was, the other big innovation was we made a uh, fund because people, when you are, what's the phrase, between Four and eight hundred dollars is when most Americans not having access to four and eight hundred four to eight hundred dollars is when most Americans fall into poverty. So we had a five hundred dollar savings account for everyone. And it ended up just being one account pooled with money, but everyone could access that if they needed. And so then when people had crises, they accessed that fund. And there was someone who was in a homeless shelter with her daughter who got kicked out. So she needed a place to stay. So we paid for a hotel. And then we paid for her bus pass to be able to get to work. And then she didn't lose her job and fall into not being able to be secure and safe. So it's also mitigating those factors. Now we're getting a real part of the inspiration story. I get it now. So this is the beginning of that. But uh, I want to go just briefly to your international experience. Just talk about that for a minute because of the different countries and the different aspects you worked in. Tell our listeners a little bit about that, please. Oh, yeah. First, again, this I'd like to think of my whole life being a continuum of me trying to learn how to better serve people and how to empower people to recognize their potential. And so working in Detroit, working on Pay It Forward, getting a degree in social work, I understood or at least felt like I had a good grasp or a baseline here on how that worked. And then the other part of it is I just kind of had itchy feet. So I had itchy feet and a desire to do good and learn about the rest of the world. So I finagled my way into working on community development projects. I worked in India on a startup incubator for triple bottom line businesses. So that's people, planet, and then profit. So are you serving people? Are you serving the planet by not you know harming it? And are you making a profit? And how can you make that triple bottom line model work? And so worked with in a small village in Southeast India in Tamil Nadu, went on an amazing camping trip in Kashmir, and then went to Uganda to work on a, it's a, so in Uganda, 85% of people that live there, 
don't use electricity to cook with. So they have to use coal and charcoal often comes from these big companies in like China or Europe that then source it in and then have these distribution centers where people buy it. But this person, Sango, was working on a model to sell charcoal door-to-door like a Mary Kay or an Avon model, but it was working with women who've in this part of Africa have historically not been allowed into the workforce. And so this was supposed to be an entrepreneurial model for them to be able to start making their own money with a 0% interest loan to be able to buy their first lot of charcoal to then sell to people. So I worked there to try and help basically balance the books and be helpful any way I could. That's also where I learned a lot about white privilege because I realized that Sango would take me to the five-star hotels where all the international aid people were. (laughs) And we would have meetings. He'd just introduce me as like a helper from America and then tell me not to say anything because he didn't want me to ruin his pitch. The people from the World Bank or DFID, the UK branch of USAID, the UK international aid people really liked that, oh, okay, Sanga must be legit because he's got a tall white guy next to him. That was very eye-opening, but also good to not learn. And then in Egypt, I worked on a rural employment scheme about the Upper Nile, which is actually in Southern Egypt. So that was with the group called the Sawiris Foundation. So that was just an interesting thing to learn about. How do you help people that are in How do you help rural people figure out how to gain substantive, long-lasting employment also while the Muslim Brotherhood's in charge? So that was wild. And then I also spent some time in Turkey working with a group trying to encourage millennials to get into philanthropy because Turkey doesn't have a long history of philanthropy, but they do have a like growing history or growing trend of younger people having money. How do you make sure that money gets funneled into good causes? I think that's great. I think... Those experiences from a service-minded sort of perspective overseas are really valuable. So, oh, totally. Good on you for doing that. Then we're traveling back to uh, Michigan, back to the city of Detroit, where you started working on economic policy. I don't know. In my mind, I think that was it's a great endeavor, but it seems to be in my mind, I think of chaos. So, how was that experience working with the city of Detroit during its economic problems? Oh, so. I guess first I should preface it by saying I was a person in the room for some of the meetings, but I was the one holding my boss's purse and taking notes for her. <laughs> so I, if, if anything bad happened based on that, it's not my fault. It was really eye-opening. That's when I also started getting The Economist every week because this is, again, going back to the evolution of myself, which thank you for giving me the space to talk about that, Roger, is that I started out as a social worker thinking purely about serving people who have been disenfranchised, unempowered, unheard, because that's how I felt when I was a teenager. That's how I felt right. when I was 10, having that leading with empathy. But then I started to learn, thanks in part to the economic crisis, thanks in part through doing pay it forward, thanks in part from traveling around the world and doing community development, that the economy, whether you like it or not, is an essential part of how the world works or doesn't work for people. So if you can work on manipulating or maneuvering within or around that, then you can make change. So That was a big eye-opening experience. Talking about, shoot, when I was there, I remember one of the things I had to do was, I I didn't talk to him, but I left a couple of voicemails for the Flint Director of Public Works because we heard heard about the Flint water crisis and said, "Uh uh-oh, Detroit was on the Flint. Detroit and Flint had the same water, but there was, so what is our exposure to the Flint water crisis? So that was a weird day. Sure. Um, And just seeing how the the machinations of local governments, how it's those people are like doing the work, right? Yep, they are. (laughs) They are. And then from that, you make the big step to run for county commissioner. You got to tell me about that. I think that must have just been, I don't know, maybe it wasn't a big deal. Maybe you just thought it was a natural progression, but 
Go into that a little bit, please. Yeah, well, I think so. I'm going to steal a phrase from activists because I've been an activist community organizer type person. So they say, if you're not at the table, you're on the menu. So I saw what it was like to be working with the people that were making big decisions about how water is going to work, how economic development is going to work, how pensions and taxing policy is going to work, how we're going to help or hurt businesses, we're going to help or hurt people and communities, how we're going to invest or divest. So seeing that being at the table or at least being table adjacent, I realized this is how the conversations happen. And it gave me this yearning to want to be at the table, being a part of that conversation, because I really believe that especially where I'm living here in Ferndale and especially here in Oakland County, that a voice that isn't heard at the table is the voice of empathy, is the voice of action, is the voice of trying to make sure that this wealth and prosperity that Oakland County has as being one of the richest places in America, not just the state, could leverage that and use that to invest and create this tremendous dividend for its people. Um, just wanted to add that to the conversation and didn't think it was necessarily happening. And of course, your campaign was in the midst of the pandemic. So is that unusual? Was that a, did it have any bearing, positive or negative, on your campaign? It was the first campaign I had ever run for, so everything was new. It definitely changed the conversation. It changed the focus, and I think it changed it for the better in terms of what I and we, our team in the 18th district, and what I think our district for the most part wants to see more of, which is right. this bend towards a government that is heard and representative of the people, a government that does take action, a government that has updated expectations, not a government that is trying to be removed or replaced or something that's that's seen as like a nuisance. And I don't know about what you or any of your listeners grew up like, Roger, but I know that for me, politics was that yucky thing, right? Politics was that thing you don't really talk about or you get into an argument about it at Thanksgiving with your whole family. So right, it's, right, right. it's either this thing you avoid or this thing that you really lean into. And a lot of us have been, I think, acculturated and habituated to leaning out of it. You don't, Teddy Roosevelt went through this. You don't do politics. That's not a Roosevelt thing. And the rest of us are the same sort of way. You're in politics or you care about that. Ugh, you should do something interesting like business or something interesting like law. And that shouldn't and doesn't have to be the case. And it hasn't always been that way. I think we need to return to a time where we realize that one, government is an integral part of your life, whether you like it or not. So you might as well speak up and participate. Two, they're taking a 30-year paycheck. So I don't know about you, but if, if I go to a restaurant and they charge me for a refill on my Coke, I ask questions and that's $2. So what happens yeah. if they take 10 grand from you? You should have something to say about that, good, bad, or other. And then also I think that'll create more empathy, right? That's the broader stroke to this is that because not all of us go through a childhood experience where they learn empathy or they don't go through a harrowing experience as an adult where they realize empathy is important, being able to facilitate that happens when you engage with your government because you realize helping my neighbor out might be a good thing. And it might not be helping your neighbor out by a $1.9 trillion stimulus package passed by the federal government. It might be realizing that your neighbor across the street can't afford the cost of replacing the sidewalk, but the city forces you to pay for replacing your sidewalk. You don't have $300? Oh, so more community. Well, that's exactly what came through when I first heard you on the um, Zoom call from the Oakland County Task Force. It was just that both the empathy and the energy, that's a unique combination. And it's what we need more of both in Oakland County and in your district and around the country, to be frank about it. But let's Talk about the major issue I wanted you to express on this call today, and that's on the housing initiative, both in Oakland County and in your district. 
Can you just frame it for our listeners a little bit so they get a scope of the situation from a wealthy county, but still pockets that are severely in need of housing stock? Can you go through that a little bit? Yes, sir. First, to go from the smallest to the biggest. It's what we're talking about here in Oakland County with this Fair Housing Initiative is first addressing source of income discrimination. So this is something that is not protected under the Fair Housing Act. This is something that is legal in most states in the country, but is also illegal in 18 states. So source of income is the way you pay your rent to a landlord. You either pay using a paycheck or you use a voucher. And so, and the voucher can either be for a veteran, it can be for someone using a housing choice voucher, so it's a person or a family in poverty. They used to be called Section 8 vouchers, that might be a more familiar term. So you're using a voucher, which is up to 100% of the fair market rate rent paid for by the federal government to then allow you to be housed, not homeless, safe and decently. The source of income discrimination comes in when landlords don't accept one of those forms of rent. And they'll accept paychecks, but they might not always accept vouchers. Not all landlords do this, but some do. And the cost benefit in conversations we've had with landlords is, I don't wanna fill out all this extra paperwork, and that's why I'm going to deny someone the right to housing. And so what we're trying to do is change the social contract here in Oakland County by encouraging local communities, right? So there are 62 cities, villages, and townships in Oakland County that have 1.2 million people in it. We wanna get all of those cities, villages, and townships to pass their own local ordinances because local governments can put teeth behind them, but also they can be gentler about compliance. So what we're asking is local communities, tell landlords and your community that discriminating based on source of income is not allowed anymore where you are. And the hook is, like I mentioned, the cost benefit first. Yep. The cost is to landlords filling out eight pieces of paper, two of which are where you talk about it's a W-9 and you ask the federal government about which bank account you want your money that is guaranteed income wired to you every month. So there's six pieces of paper that if you could pass a city code or a city code enforcement check, you can check the boxes on those six pieces of paper be done in 15 minutes. So the paperwork is not onerous. But still, if you're a landlord that's hesitant about this, we're also setting up an arrangement with helping agencies, so the Alliance for Housing and other organizations in Oakland County, to help you go through the process of filling out the paperwork and to help you also, because what we realize is that some landlords are not up to code. So landlords will say a couple of things. First, too much paperwork, but that's just kind of part of the deal. It's un-American to say there's too much paperwork for you, veteran, to be allowed to be housed. That's not part of what it means to live in Oakland County anymore. That's just the biggest change. You're going to have to fill out those six pieces of paper so that you can get guaranteed income for someone or a family to occupy your place that is your, that's your role that you've chosen to take as a job as a landlord in society. Second thing landlords say is, I'm worried that the government's gonna get all in my business because I'll have to be up to code. And every time a code enforcement comes by, they always tell me to fix several hundred dollars worth of things. So that's why we're setting up a fund to help defray the cost of getting up to code. Because we understand you're in business to try and make money. You don't necessarily are in business to try and help poverty-stricken people find housing. So we get that and we're trying to meet that need where it is. Now, the third thing landlords often say is poor people or people in vouchers are messier or dirtier or they're somehow less worthy of my place because they're going to mess it up somehow. They have less respect for places and things. First, that's um, not true. If you ever had a kid, all kids draw on walls. So not just poor kids. That's just not accurate. But if that's something that you're worried about, 
First, voucher holders will lose their voucher for life if they get a bad uh, review from a landlord. And if a landlord files a piece of paper with the local HUD authority to say, this person messed up my place and cost me damage, they will become homeless. So tenants have an inherent right or inherent uh, self-interest to not mess up a place. Second, even if that does happen to you landlords in Oakland County, what we're going to do is set up a mitigation fund to mitigate that risk so that you can apply in addition to the security deposit for up to $2,000 to help defray the cost again if someone messes up your place or their kid draws on the wall and you need to repaint or hang new wallpaper. So we're trying to do something that's common sense, but also just, right? It is just because it's allowing people who can afford housing to be able to stay in housing. And right now, for every three vouchers that go out into the market in Oakland County, two are returned. Right. So this is becoming endemic. And then also on top of that was, that was just pre and during COVID. What happens on June 30th, when the eviction moratorium is lifted, is going to be this huge downward pressure because there's going to be middle-class people in Oakland County that live in, whether it's a $100,000 house they can't afford the mortgage on because they lost their job, or what we see a lot of is Oakland County's main line of business is professional services. If all that stuff has been downsized because of a low, lack of demand, there are going to be accountants with $700,000 houses that are going to find try and find a way to rent apartments that are $1,500 a month. And then on top of that, we just have Oakland County, which is an aging county in a state that is one of the fastest aging states. So almost a quarter of Oakland County residents are over 65, so they want to downsize just because they're empty nesters. So there's going to be already extreme downward pressure on rentals, and that's not even including people who are in poverty that are at risk of not being able to find housing anyways. So there's a lot of moving parts that we need to just start getting a handle on. And thanks to places like California and New York that have done interventions in a non-market-driven way, we see the benefits, and also the risks of doing that. So we can learn from their mistakes to not do it the same way. So now is a great time. And again, Oakland County being one of the richest places in the country, we can address that and we ought to take that on because what else is the government for other than tackling big issues? That sure, sure. What, what sort of um, reception are you getting from city and county officials, everyone you're talking with today? Are they, I'm sure they're listening, but are they changing their attitudes? Are they changing their... Are they ready to accept the initiatives that your your team or your group is putting forward? How's, how's it going so far? Thank you for asking. Um, depending on who you ask, like anything, it's either going really great or really terribly. So I'd say we split the difference and we're probably 51-49-4. But I say that because also this is the whole point of why I ran and why the team that we've built for the 18th district and I, why I hope the you know 30,000 people that voted for us in the 18th district voted for us is because we're here to update the conversation. The days of Oakland County Commission just drafting ceremonial resolutions to say we believe in fair housing are hopefully coming to a close because as a county commissioner, I get paid $38,000 a year. So from one perspective, you don't want me to waste all that money just to kind of give ceremonial proclamations to like the local community theater saying, thanks for being a theater in our town. You want us to do something with that money. So to put that to work, this is hopefully going to update the conversation internally in the commission and in Oakland County government, but then also create this culture shift that we need to jump on because the biggest, most damning stat I can tell you is that Oakland County and Metro Detroit as a whole is the most segregated metro area in the United States. So that is hurting us economically, it's hurting us socially, 
It's something that if we don't address is something that's going to just become the new normal. So to try and upend that and work against that, we need a culture shift. Part of that is having the hard conversations about housing. And it's not that this is a bad deal for landlords. It's not that this is a bad deal for tenants. This is a good deal for everybody. It's just making sure people's fears are overcome with people's hopes. And I think now the mindset is a little bit more cooperative than it would have been prior to the pandemic. I'll, I'll say that from my experience. And I think that you'll have an easier conversation getting more people on your team or on, on your sort of pathway toward an econ economic model and housing that really works and works for those that are in need. From the standpoint of listeners that will listen to this podcast that are civic minded, that might want to get involved, how can they do that? How can they get involved in this sort of housing debate, housing initiative? What should they do? Thank you for asking. So there are a few things. So again, going from smallest to biggest. First, wherever you are, because I know you said you have listeners in Oklahoma and Texas, ask your local representatives, whether they be state representatives or county commissioners or city council members, if your state or community or county have source of income protections. Because in 18 states, roughly 50% of all rentals in America, there are source of income protections, which again means people with vouchers who have a way to pay for their full rent are able to find housing just as easily as someone who, has, who gets a paycheck to pay for their housing. So there's just that light lift. It's not a massive investment. It's not massive intrusion of government. It's extremely common sense, and it's just signing a piece of paper saying you don't want to allow discrimination in your community. So first, see if your local community has those protections. If not, get participating. Start being involved. Demand what is your right, which is to be heard. But saying that to say that just blows my mind why 50% of every community doesn't take an interest in their government and its politics. And I think this is, again, going to that broader point of the conversation that a lot of us have been, again, acculturated to of the that government isn't the answer government is the problem that narrative needs to change and i think like what you just said roger covid has helped show us that there is a monolithic structure that can have a positive impact on our lives at least at a common denominator level we can talk about big bold things but the nuts and bolts of things government is the one and only thing that we can think to believe will have our back when stuff hits the fan and we're seeing that now, and we ought to recognize that and remember that. And so second, more specifically, if you live in Oakland County, come to our Saturday 10 a.m. Zoom meetings. Okay. Uh, I'll, I'll, I'll be happy to give you my info and you can Please share do. with Please do. Because we have a dozen policy prescriptions that are being led by 15 volunteers. Because again, this is a democracy. Your government should be accessible. I am a person who should be accessible. I should not be put on a pedestal. That's why I try not to talk about myself, but the 18th district, because I'm keeping the seat warm for the next person who's gonna kick my butt in the next election. This is supposed to be something we go through the churn. This is the democracy, right? Alexis de Tocqueville talked about the democracy in America back in the early 1800s. This is supposed to be a community conversation that is ever evolving. We're a, this is an organism and an ecosystem that is alive, but it's only alive if you participate. It's only functioning if you're a part of it. So come to our Saturday 10 a.m. Zoom meetings to talk about any number of policy prescriptions, whether that's infrastructure, aging, housing, criminal justice reform, the county does it all. Second thing, show up to meetings. We have, I'm the vice chair of the finance committee representing the 18th district, and it is amazing to me how fast we spend your tax dollars. <laughs> we just spent $4.1 million to help finish a $57 million 
project about radios. This is one of those things where the justification seemed like it was worth the expense, but also I'm new. And this is a thing. If you think someone's doing something wrong, they probably are because you're just as smart as your politicians. So don't don't believe the hype. And the other thing, right, show up. No one came to the finance committee meeting to say, hey, are you guys sure? Did you ask these questions? Here's some thoughts I have about that. Or I worked in the radio industry and I will tell you this, that, or the third. Some bureaucrat came to us and said, we need $4 million. The sheriff said, we need $4 million. And we said, if you guys know what you're doing, great. We can do better. Yeah, but we can it do only better. happens if you're holding us to account. <laughs> yeah, let's have that. If you can provide that information, we'll put yes, that sir, out sir. next week too when we provide the show notes for this podcast. Before we sign off, we're getting a little bit close to time. I just wanted to hit on your other job, your Habitat for Humanity endeavor. That, As we talked earlier this week, that struck a chord with me. And tell me about what your what what excites you about that and what your plans are for Habitat and the organization that you're working with. Yeah, thank you. So Habitat for Humanity is run like a franchise model, right? So it's one of the most recognized brands around the world, but Habitat Oakland is its own local affiliate. So we have to raise our own money and we do our own projects. So in Oakland County, it's unique because first, being this place that does have such disparities in wealth and lack of wealth, it's extremely expensive to build a house in a habitat community. So one, we just always need money. Two, thanks to COVID, lumber has shot up 250% and houses are built with, you guessed it, lumber. So that then makes already expensive houses even more expensive. And then the third thing is because Habitat is a nonprofit developer, we build and also rehab houses that then go to a different spec. So when working in communities, we don't just put slapboard on, we put lead platinum certified things on. We use contractors that are vetted and licensed. We work with people that we can take the extra time to make sure the edges are lined up. But saying all that to say that the biggest thing that Habitat tries to do is give people access to safe and decent housing, because what has been proven by the federal government, by a Pew Charitable Trust, by Republicans and Democrats alike, Housing First works. And Housing First is a model that uh, comes from John Huntsman, the former governor of Utah, Republican statesman, former ambassador to China under Barack Obama. When he was governor of Utah, he ended homelessness in Utah by doing Housing First, which is whatever your other symptoms or problems or issues that you're having internally or externally with yourself or your community, the biggest impact to whether you will succeed in being able to be self-sufficient and be able to contribute to the, your community is if you can be housed. And Habitat tries to do that, and we've been trying to do that for 50 years. And so the more we're able to do that, aka the more money you're able to give us, the better we're going to be at it. Great, great. Let's also provide the information both for donations as well as volunteering for Habitat. If you can provide me that, then I'll put that on the show notes next week too. So that'll be yes, great. Please. But I just wanted to say thank you. Thank you so much for doing this call. It means a lot. And um I'm really thrilled that you came on and spent some time with us. And I know our listeners will be better educated. And I have learned a little bit about the housing issues in Oakland County. And hopefully we'll spur a few civic-minded people to get involved and to show up on your Zoom calls and maybe even in person. So that would be good. So I'd love that. Heck yeah. Thank you, Roger. And also thank you. I Listening to your the last show, I think you were a guest on talking about what it means to be a more compassionate man. I took a few notes away from that too. So thank you. No, thank you. Thank you. Thanks for coming on. We'll talk again. I loved it. Thanks. Thanks. Bye. 
Thank you for listening to the Third Act Podcast. To find out more about who we are spotlighting, how to get involved, or find show notes on today's episode, go to wearethirdact.com. With my third